Broadcasting from Columbus, Ohio, this is the Campus Reach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. Episode 90, an interview with Tom Short. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Reach Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism, and I am in the basement of one Tom Short. So Tom Short and I met 22 years ago, I believe it was September of 2000. I was, uh, for the first time, open-air preaching, traveling in my 1978 deluxe Volkswagen bus, and I was up in New England, and I was uh, it was early internet days, so I'm emailing people on e-groups asking if anybody knows anybody who knows how to do campus preaching. I had one or two models that I kind of knew what I didn't want to do, uh, but I wasn't sure how I wanted to do it. And then uh, someone said, uh, "There's a guy named Tom Short that would come to Texas A&M in the '90s. Uh, I thought he did a pretty good job with it." And I maybe Yahooed Tom Short at that time, and. He looked like Ned Flanders, and I was like, "Do I want to? Do I want to preach with Ned Flanders?" And so I had to kind of debate that, and I was like, "All right, you only live once." So I sent him an email, and a day or two later, he responded to my email. He said, "I'm going to be in Washington D.C. during these days," and I was coming down out of New England, so it made sense for me to stop in Washington D.C. and meet up with him. So I met with him at George Washington University, and uh, shortly after he began to preach, I was like, "Yeah, this is this is the model that I kind of want to uh, go with." So I wanted to sit down and interview with him. You may remember him from the. Uh, interview that we did about the life of Jed Smock, who was the the man that we both saw preaching for the first time. Uh, but I want Tom to kind of introduce himself, also introduce kind of how he got into open-air preaching, and we'll kind of go from there. And, and uh, Keith, you had no idea that I was the inspiration for Ned Flanders. <laughs> I, had no idea. I had no idea you're the inspiration for it, yeah. That, that's, that's one of those things you find in the uh, recesses of IMDB, is that Tom Short was the, the uh, inspiration for Ned Flanders. So years ago... When I was still just out of high school, I, and even in high school, I had the desire to publicly proclaim Jesus Christ. I just wanted to do it. I'd be in my high school cafeteria, and I'd feel like I wanted to stand up and, on a table and just tell everybody about Jesus. I never did. But when we got to college, we tried a couple times out on the Oval at the Ohio State University. We'd stand up, and we'd, we'd go out there and sing some songs, and then stand up and share a testimony or something. And likewise, this was something that I just felt so compelled to tell not just individuals, but to tell groups. Somehow, when I looked in the New Testament, I saw them preaching to groups. I didn't see just a whole lot of one-on-one evangelism, although there is some of that there. And I didn't see them only talking in the churches. They were out publicly. They were proclaiming to the lost. And this was just compelling to me to want to do it. Well, I'd, uh, so we, I tried it some, and, and uh, we mostly had people listen to us who uh, just agreed with us. We were already out there with us from our church, and most everybody else would walk by, and we'd feel like maybe we were doing some good by throwing a gospel verse at them and feeling they would remember it the rest of their life. and get <laughs> but, um, but we were talking about Jeb Smock here earlier, and really it was, I remember the one day walking across the old Ohio State, and he was out there, there was a large crowd, and he was preaching. And I remember what he was doing was rebuking someone for drinking. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, what in the world? I, I didn't have time to stop. I had no idea what it was. Later on, I saw him and, uh, at another time. And believe it or not, what happened, he called on his partner. And it was, I was so appalled by the things they were saying, the rebuking and the, the negativity. and the uh, It was all about don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. And a lot of it was pretty, uh, you know, it, it just didn't seem the right spirit to me. So when he called upon his partner to take his place, I jumped into the middle of the audience. There were 700 people there. And I'd never done anything like this before, but I took several minutes to kind of give a, 
let me tell you about the God I know and, and share my testimony and how God loves us and wants to save us. That didn't go over well <laughs> with his partner. But, uh, you know, remember his partner who it was? Matt Max. Oh, okay. Mad Max. Matt, yeah. Yeah. Matt, Max wasn't wild about it. Later on, he, he, he had a word or two for me after I was, you know, mm-hmm. in private. But the point was, I, in time went on, I, I was so upset with Jed and some of their approach. As time went on, I felt convicted that God wanted me to learn from him and at least approach him privately. And maybe by learn, I, I remember thinking, even if he was out there preaching about communists, somehow he's getting all these people to listen. And I couldn't get anyone to listen. I didn't know how to do that. So in time, I, you know, I began to have a better attitude of learning, of trying to see what can I discern from this. Um, in time, we became friends, Jed and I. And I learned some valuable lessons from him that really have helped me. But a kind of a watershed moment that I may have shared in the podcast when we were talking about him earlier is when I did kind of change my attitude and want to be maybe approach him with some respect instead of just rebuking him. I walked him to his car one day and from the Oval Office to the, the parking lot. And as we walked, uh, he just listened the whole way there. I remember we got to the car. I can see it now. He stood there by his car, opened the car door, put his briefcase in, turned to look me in the eye and said, you preach on campus? And I said, well, a little bit, not really. He said, well, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't. <laughs> and with that, he turned down the car, drove off, came to say goodbye. And, uh, and, and I, as he drove down, I thought he had a point. But I also said, Lord, I pray that come day couldn't say that to me again. Mm-hmm. And that day came. He would he would never say he would have never said that to me the last forty years mm-hmm. because I think he can't really respect. And Jed, Jed would always respect people who preach in the open air, even if he didn't agree with everything they believed. Yeah, he'd respect their their courage and their faith and their effort to get the gospel out to the lost. Yeah, and what year was that? I, I need. I, I'd like to pinpoint years. Well, that probably would have been uh, 1977. Okay. Probably 1977. And, and when did you pivot to start doing open air preaching yourself? Well, so in 1979, so, you know, we, I, I try every now and then. But in 1979, we moved to um, Maryland to plant a church there. And it was a time, <clears throat> it was very, very hard. We moved from Columbus, Ohio to Maryland, and they were so hard. The East Coast was so, the, the University of Maryland, the ground was so hard, the people were so hard, and it was a very difficult time. We, we were expecting to see a lot of fruit because there were no, hardly any Christian camp, groups on campus. We thought we're going to sweep in and see other people <laughs> saved. Well, there's a reason there weren't many Christian groups. It's hard ground, and we had it was a tough time. In, in that spring, we preached some, and at the end of that spring, there were semesters, I, I traveled out to Ohio. And I went to Ohio and Michigan to campuses where no one would know me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try some things. I did not want to be exactly like Jed, but I, I had thought I'd learned some things from him. And I wanted to be able to do it. But if, if I really blew it and, and didn't come across well, I didn't want anyone to know. <laughs> so I went to about eight campuses over a three-week period. And that's when it just things blossomed for me. And I figured out who I am, what I can do, what I'm comfortable with, what works, what doesn't. That, that line of how do you, how do you reprove people without, how do you, without being a, a, a negative spirit and mm-hmm. things of this nature. And that was the real turning point in my life. That May 
in early June 1980. Uh, that's, that's really fascinating because I think of me seeing Jed 29 years ago, freshman year, Bowling Green State University. And a similar thing, I was converted about a month, six weeks prior to seeing him and thinking like, I remember thinking, even when I was converted, you want to tell people, you know what I mean? You got to tell somebody about it. And then seeing Jed, I, I didn't know enough. I just went back. I was reading Acts. I was, Acts was kind of new to me. I was like, yeah, they're publicly preaching. And then even the thing was kind of interesting, kind of like uh, I kind of mentioned the introduction is after hanging out with you for that week in the Washington, D.C., we were even at Maryland. Uh, I remember kind of dropping south. I went into North Carolina and you kind of told me two things. You said, well, you can preach. You got to preach in a way where they have to listen to you rather than you hope that they listen to you. And then you, you also said, when someone asks you a question, take two steps back and project your answer because someone asked me a question, I go up and start talking to them. And it was that element of like, what kind of works here? You know what I mean? I think you even encouraged me to maybe just start off preaching through Romans 1. And that way you kind of have a Bible verse that's confrontational, yet you're within the constraints of scripture. You're not just out there being an outlandish madman or something like that. So that was kind of the, the beginning for a little bit. And it was a week after we met that I kind of, I remember preaching at Appalachian State University, maybe a couple weeks after we met. So I preached at NC State and UNC. I remember going up to Appalachian State University and started preaching and all these people just started coming on a hill and gathering. I was like, okay, I, got, I think I'm getting my legs under me. And then after that point, just started the game momentum. And yeah. so I'll tell you the three things I learned from Jed, if I re- can remember them now. Uh, one he he would only start hearken unto the word of the Lord. <laughs> and when we tried to preach earlier, we'd, we'd, we'd try and think of a point of relating to the students. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were learning in a class or something going on in the culture. Well, as if then we're going to spring on them. Kind of, you know, really, we're going to work Jesus into it. Well, let's be honest. They figured no one's out there lecturing on campus about Sigmund Freud or something like that, you know. And so I just learned, just start right off in the Bible. Everybody knows what you're there. Just start right off. Honor the Word of God right at the very beginning. Second thing I learned was interaction. Before everyone who tried, if someone would heckle us or walk by our son, we'd ignore him. We'd say, no, we're not, we wouldn't interact at all. Well, again, I realized people love, love to see debate and interaction. They're not that interested in hearing another lecture. Uh-huh. And uh, they've heard enough of them. They don't like to sit there and hit, hear lectures, but they love the interaction. And so that was the second thing I learned. And the third thing I learned was action. He was always on the move. <laughs> he, would point, he would he would walk. He would run. He would he would spin. He'd do all. He he was uh, just he moved. Yeah. And I was just used to kind of standing still, like you're behind a, a, a lectern and don't move at all. And one thing I realized, if you're gonna like we preach for five hours a day, you got to keep their attention. Mm-hmm. And if your body's moving, people's eyes are on you. If your body's not moving, their eyes tend to wander, and they look around at other things. And when their their eyes wander, their mind wanders. When the mind wanders, off they go. And so those were three things that I, when I changed my attitude, I'm going to learn from Jed. Mm-hmm. Uh, action, action, and action. Yeah. Be on the move. Interact with people. Invite questions. Have the discussion. Defend the people want to know. They they want to hear that type. And then um, start with the Word of God unashamedly. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to fool you while I'm up here. They know why. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. I'm here to talk about God and His Word. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the things I remember when we first met up the first week. One of the one of the things I remember thinking that you did really well. And I still don't to this day incorporate it well because I'm too quick. Even we, we preached the other day for the first time, maybe in 12 years, a decade. I don't remember the last time we preached together at Bowling Green State University. And um, 
and you know, I have a tendency to be like, just get to the point where I remember we're at George Washington University and you dragged out this story <laughs> of going, you're in India, you're going up to like these temples and, and like there was some, I've maybe even Hindus or whatever were in the, in the crowd. And like, and that was the thing I kind of kept building in there. And like, and you're like, I, I can't say it. I can't say it. I think they're washing in urine or something like that. And you're like, oh, I can't say it. And like, and like you would, and you drag this thing out. It seemed to be like 20 minutes. I'm like, just give them the line. Just tell them why. Because, and I also felt like the, the line's going to be disappointing of what really going to be like, oh, I can't tell you what happened. And, and I just remember them just like, but after like 50 minutes, them still be like, what were they doing? What were they doing? He's like, they're washing themselves in urine or something like that. And do you remember kind of along those lines? Yeah. And, and uh, I remember very early on, and that kind of ties into to all those aspects that's going on when people are asking like, what are you doing while you're open air preaching? There are so many dynamics, like fortunately my mind works a certain way, but yeah, you're thinking of how do I move? How do I keep the crowd? Uh, what can you say? What can't you say? There, there's so many dynamics that are going on that like part of what I love about it is all the, all my senses are fully engaged and hopefully I'm fully engaging everything that's going on out there. But I remember you doing that and thinking like, I, I, I kind of need to learn to do that. I've never really, and it's never really been incorporated into my repertoire, but I remember just thinking like that's something that's really well done. One of the, one of the most important things to do is tell stories. And people love to hear stories. Of course, Jesus told stories. He wasn't the only one. A lot of people in the Bible told stories. The Bible is a story. Uh-huh. It's a true story. But there is a story here. Stories have drama. They have suspense. They, have, they, they build to a certain climax. They have points to them. And, um, and so, yeah, these, this is part of our communication strategy, whether we know it or not. I, I've never really taken storytelling lessons mm-hmm. but i am a storyteller yeah by nature and and it, and it uh, comes out we trust god to honor his word and and uh, god is the one who saves people god is the one who brings conviction it's the spirit of god who does these things but we have our part to play mm-hmm. we've got to love people we've got to pray and then we've got to do our best to communicate and accurately clearly and and in a way that really touches people's lives it's God that brings the fruit, but we we can't expect to be sloppy in our communication, to be unclear or to be boring or something like this, and just say, "Well, God's going to make up for it," mm-hmm. because God, we, we've got to give it our best, and God brings the fruit. Yeah, and you know, in our little my little reform world, we'll say God uses the means He uses is the preacher, and and one of the things where I feel like and one of the things I kind of like, and even being with you the last couple of days, that the needle we're threading is you kind of have the hyper contextualization people who you like you're like. Are you really still a Christian anymore? You know what I mean? It's just everything, geez. Or then, or you have the people just like, oh, we're just going to preach. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? You kind of have like this almost radically decontextualized thing. But yeah, you're absolutely right. What we're trying to do is hop in there. And I think even the, even the part that you said, and I very early on in my campus preaching, I think my main error, and it probably still lingers to this day, like being in reformed circles, we're very, we have a tendency to read systematic theologies. And when you're out on campus, you don't want to preach a systematic theology, nor do you want to be in on a systematic theology uh, lecture or preaching. And I remember when I was younger, I thought you, there's only one way to preach, and it has to be just be all these propositional truths. And then when you realize that the Bible's just tons and tons of stories. And so I was always afraid of preaching in stories, but yeah, you start to go out on campus and I even realized when you're sitting around with your friends, what do you love doing? Sitting around telling stories. And so when you're out on campus telling stories about Jesus, telling stories, even other campus stories and uh, that sort of stuff, I just think that's a a key to communication. Well, and of course, anyone who's listening to this podcast ought to to let you know on, let you in on some inside knowledge. And that's when Steve, excuse me, that's when you and I are together. (laughs) We tell stories, <laughs> and it is a blast. We <laughs> laugh and laugh, and we tell stories, and Keith is quite a storyteller.
Yeah, and I, and I was yeah, that, that's even like one of the things like I I enjoy yeah like it it's even we kind of talked about this uh, with the Jed one but the camaraderie like you go out on campus for the day and even this morning we, we preached yesterday and uh, right before the podcast we were just talking about some of the some of the things we said yesterday and there's just yeah it's just it really is just like so much joy and one of the most enjoyable things that you could possibly be doing because you get to share with people about Jesus so you're talking to unbelievers about Jesus but then from there you're gonna go back with your brothers and uh, kind of tell stories about what happened today like the, the soldiers who were in the foxhole together mm-hmm. and there's a bond that's built and there's there's fun times they had and there's dangerous times they had and there there are victorious times and there's sad times and all of that really builds that camaraderie yeah I, yeah it's pretty fantastic so you started more in 1979 uh, was when you took your kind of three-week trip Oh, it was 1980? Okay. So 1980, you, uh, you started to take your three-week trip. And then was that what you were doing full-time? Or were you pastoring through the 80s? Yeah, I was, uh, when we went out to, to plant the church in Maryland, we, we went in late 79, and I was fully supported at that time. Okay. And when, when you started going out preaching, Maryland, you said, was really, really hard. If you Is there a connection between Maryland 40 years ago, Maryland today? And even just like, if you don't mind just kind of sharing what you've seen, I mean, 42 years of culture change. So. Yeah, before I say that, let me start about, let me tell you about the, the fall of 1980 at the University of Maryland. So we had moved there in December. This is now August. So that's eight months later, nine, eight months later or so, nine months. And uh, I felt really um, challenged that we've been here and we thought we were going to see a, a church raise up. <laughs> We've seen a few people say it was, it was really piddling, hardly any fruit. And, uh, and God convicted me of verse from John chapter 15, I believe verse seven or eight, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. And I remember praying, hmm. Lord, I know I'm your disciple. I know I'm following you, but we, we have not borne the fruit. And I pray we bear much fruit, but this is my Father glorified. Lord, glorify yourself to us. That was my verse, and I felt it was a compelling verse that God wanted me to claim that promise and that and so forth. So we looked at the book of Acts, and there were two things they did in the book of Acts that led to fruitful growth. They prayed and they preached. And we decided that fall that as leaders of the church, we'd get together every morning, 6.30 a.m. for a half an hour of prayer. A prayer meeting often turned into an hour long or longer of prayer, crying out to God for our campus, for our lives, for our church, for the Washington, D.C. area. We, we didn't often pray more for the nation. And and uh, and then we'd go out and preach for about three hours every day on the campus, hmm. about from noon to three each day and sometimes longer. And And that's when... The floodgates opened. People began to get saved. There were large crowds gathered every day, day after day. And we, I, I preached until the weather turned bad in mid-November. So that's about almost three months of preaching, day in, day out, every day on campus. And after a while, people just started getting saved. And they got saved in this very uh, intense spiritual environment. They, they were used to seeing, they were seeing me getting persecuted. They were seeing me getting uh, people opposing and that's where they were coming to Christ in the midst of that. And so they meant business for God when they got saved mm-hmm. in that environment. And they wanted to preach. They wanted to get up and share their testimony. They wanted to tell others. And something really happened. You know, Christianity Today, at the end of that semester, there was an article about us called Revival at the University of Maryland. Oh, wow. And it was about like a two-page article. And, of course, they introduced or they interviewed the campus chaplain who was a Lutheran. <laughs> Woman. Unitarian, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, she didn't like our approach, mm-hmm. and, but uh, but it was it was revival. 
going on, and it was a it was a mini revival. Hmm. People were coming to Christ, being baptized, being being capturing the the faith. Our 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 church grew, our Bible studies grew. There was something exciting happening in that day. That's amazing. I didn't, yeah, you've never. I don't think you've ever shared that with me. Nor have I never. I definitely have not read the Christianity Today article. Do you have? A, am I able to get one before I leave? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so, uh, so that was in what year was that again? That was the fall of 1980. Okay, fall of 1980, and then you were were you planted in Maryland for the next you know? Well, so I lived in Maryland until 19, for, we left there in 1988. During that time, I was on campus quite a bit. I was also pastoring a church. And then our, our uh, group, uh, we had a network of churches on campus around the country. We had a newspaper called Today's Student, and then later on a newspaper we, uh, that, was, that, that was on campuses all over America for a while. We ran out of money, went to fund. We came back for a uh, second chance with a different newspaper a couple years later called U.S. Press. And I was uh, editor of U.S. Press, and then we, two other magazines we did. We believed a lot in using the printed word mm-hmm. as well. And we wanted to just use every way we could to get the word out. So we had a magazine called The Christian Cause and The Potential Magazine. And I was editor of all those. So during those times, I was not on campus as often okay. because it, it was full-time publishing that we had going on. But I'd get out there when I could. And I loved it. The other thing that happened after after what we started seeing the fall of 1980, people began to invite me to their campuses, and they said, "Can you come here and preach on my campus?" And that's how my my ministry grew from um, it 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 grew organically in that sense that people would say, "Wow, can you come preach on our campus?" And that's when I started going to other places. All right, and. Uh- so, so were, we, were you guys large like a East Coast thing, or are you pretty spread out across the country? Uh, mostly Midwest at that okay. time, throughout Midwestern, and um, a little bit more. I mean, in 1988, we moved to Atlanta, where I pastored a church, and I would, I would speak at some of the campuses in the southeastern part of the country. I moved to San Diego, where, again, I pastored a church, and I, for a couple of years, I wasn't on campus. And actually, if you got time, I can tell you the yeah. story. So, so um Fast forward now, we're in 1992, excuse me, 1994, and I'm living in San Diego. I've been pastoring a community church there, and to be honest, I'm enjoying it. I'm around my family a lot. I'm not on the road much. I I, uh, uh, I like I like my church. I like the people. It's a beautiful area, secure job. Everything's really nice, but often in my times of prayer, I felt as if, um, I, I felt as if, Am I really in the center of God's will? My wife would say, "I'm not firing all eight cylinders." <laughs> it's just you know, I'm not. I'm not. There's not the the fullness of God's blessing like I'm used to, like she's used to seeing. I would pray at night, and I remember a prayer that would come to me: "Is Jesus said we should pray for laborers?" And I would pray for that. And, I, and this thought came to me: I have volunteered to be a laborer in the gospel. And I hope I'm not going back on it now. I was pastoring a church, but was I really laboring in the gospel? And I felt as if I wasn't, and I'd pray, Lord, I'd say, Lord, not enough people volunteer to be laborers. I volunteered. I don't want to go back on it. I don't want to put my hand to the plow and turn back. So, and yet I was afraid because he'd read all this stuff about these, uh, what millennials was the generation at the time, <laughs> how they're different, and you can't communicate the same way, and and college students are different. I'd only been off the campus two or three years. And yet I was reading this stuff by George Barna and uh-huh. people and I'm just thinking, I can't communicate with these people. It, it won't work. 
It won't work. And so what happened? Uh, it was January of 1994, and there was an earthquake up in Northridge, California. Yeah. It was about two hours north of where we were living. Our church collected supplies. We were going to deliver them up there the next day. That evening, a friend of mine from up in that area called and said, you know, with what's happening, uh, and he was in ministry at UCLA, can you come up and preach on campus? Well, I was scared to, but I couldn't say no. We're going, to, <laughs> we're going up there the next day anyway. So I agreed to and give it a shot. And I was, again, is this, is this going to work? Are people going to listen? Does what I, does what we do, will it work in this new generation? And it had only been a few years that I'd been off the campus. Well, we went up, delivered the earthquake supplies. I preached on campus. And you know what? It worked. <laughs> Students thought they had the same. Question. Was that Northridge or UCLA? That was at UCLA. Okay. They had the same questions. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, they gathered around. I, I still had it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a little rusty. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so I, um, I just felt, I came home that night feeling like God had really opened the door back up and was sending it back on campus. That night, when I got home, I read a newsletter by James Dobson. It was describing the first year, the previous year of the Clinton administration and all the things that they had done. You know, Jocelyn Elders, the Surgeon General, was, you know, things she talked about, and, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. teach the kids and all these things on abortion, all these things in our culture. And I realized we, and, and I just was overwhelmed with this thought we are in a spiritual battle. I've got weapons, and I haven't been using them. Mm-hmm. And I just felt that night God was saying, get back on the campus. As fate would have it, a day or two later, I found out, we were talking about Jed Smock earlier, he was in Southern California preaching. I, somehow I found out he was there. I arranged it. That's fine, because that's early. That's no internet days. Yeah. That's, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I found out, and, and I arranged to get on the same campus and Afterwards, I talked. I heard him preach, and I talked to him. And I still remember exactly what he said. So he helped get me going the first time, mm-hmm. and he helped get me going the second time because I I talked to him and I told him my fear. The students changed. Is it different now? And I still remember his answer. He said, "No, the students are the same." He said, "There might be a few more lesbians." <laughs> <laughs> in Southern California the next 10 days or so and I went on a campus with him a few times and it relit the fire opened the door back up and that's when I determined I need to get back on the campus and made some decisions. I resigned my job find someone to replace me in that pastoring that church, the way I raised my support all these decisions had to be made but but that time I decided we're going to do it Uh huh. That's, that's, yeah it's pretty pretty amazing so you but you mentioned the thanks for me you mentioned Jed saying yeah basically a few more lesbians have you noticed I feel like say post covid pre covid there seems to be some radical shifts so in my head from 1980 racing through up until 2022 um I feel like there's been a few watersheds in my lifetime so you and I were actually traveling together on 911 we um we met up in Baltimore I believe we preached the day before maybe in the Baltimore was that? Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, it got, yeah. And we stayed the night in Manhattan, and then we we're on the West Side Highway. Uh, 
Yeah, and I remember we had the car quiet. I remember looking back and seeing the smoke. So all those fire trucks were racing the other way. And I don't think I think we got to like a Burger King in like Connecticut. Maybe your son called, and yeah. um, and so um, anyway, that that to me that's like that was like a watershed that like I just feel like it was, it was a almost like a shot across the bow, and like America began to crumble quite a bit. Yeah, maybe it was maybe the, it was already there before because like you, know, you I'm myopic in my view of history. I'm like you know twenty. 21 years old at the time. So maybe I was a little bit limited or 25 years old. Um, so anyway, I guess my, my question is seeing the evolution over 42 years of preaching on campus, those cultural changes and, and is there radical shifts and what, yeah, even when we think of evangelism, we think of churches, uh, we do seem to be losing ground by the moment. And uh, you know, what, what's kind of the, the trajectory and the remedy? So, you know, it, it does grieve me. And I do think that um, the, the, the COVID has accelerated the secularization and the rejection of Christianity on our campuses is my observation for my, and that's just my anecdotal. I will say that Christian groups took a big hit during COVID. A lot of them lost a lot of people. A lot of them did not meet and, and they're still recovering. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's the COVID there's the George Floyd, black lives matter uh, uprising. There were. I didn't get to hear it, but I saw some angst the other day over Black Lives Matter. I was I was, I was off in the distance talking to some people out here something about Black Lives Matter. And, and, I, and I was surrounded by you know people. Well, people ask me, "Do you want me to go?" Yeah, yeah. Some people ask me, uh, "Hey Tom, do you believe Black Lives Matter?" And my answer, as in many of these questions, I said, "Well, it's complicated." <laughs> What do you mean? It shouldn't be complicated. What's your answer? Yes or no? Uh-huh. And my answer is, I do believe black lives matter. Small b, small l, small m. Black people matter. But I don't agree with the organization Black Lives Matter. I believe it's a Marxist organization that, that lobbies for transgender right. And I and I believe that uh, this it surge of, of secularism, of really Marxism on our campuses and a new surge of the LGBT with an emphasis now on the transgender. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it does come from the, the uprising of Black Lives Matter from two years ago, the George Floyd time. And so there, there is all of this is accelerating. These things were happening, obviously, mm-hmm. but the, the secularization, the rise of cultural Marxism, the rejection of, of Christianity has all been accelerated in the last couple of years mm-hmm. and accelerated at warp speed. Yeah. In cultural Marxism, there's good guys and bad guys. There's the the moral superiors and the moral inferiors. There's the oppressors and the oppressed. And that's how Marxism looks at history. And in 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 that in the cultural Marxism, and this has been on the campuses for years. I remember recognizing this back in the '80s when this when I was at University of Maryland. But the bad guys. Are the the oppressors the bad guys are the ones who are you know in charge the women mm-hmm. and who are the, you know the white people the Christian people the the males the Americans uh, and and the the uh, heterosexuals those are the bad people mm-hmm. and who are the who are the the oppressed in the Marxist cultural Marxism are the good people the moral superiors they but they've been held down by the bad people who are the who are the good people then. And this is this is not good based on anything you've done. This is good based on what group you're in, mm-hmm. or bad based on what group you're in. And so the people in the oppressed group are morally superior, and they are the you know people of color and and non-Christian religions or atheism, uh, uh, women, 
LGBTQ and uh, non-Americans, you know, and these, so this, this uh, narrative has been uh, accelerated in the last couple of years. And now it's like, if you're one of the, of those oppressed groups, you're morally superior and people want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. And if you're one of the others, they're the moral inferiors. You don't want to be part of that. So that now, like, you know, this week on campus, I would, I would start sometimes, and you, you'd have a big group, and it was my turn to preach. I'd say, uh, I might ask, is there anyone out here who's a heterosexual? <laughs> <laughs> and it's almost like there's so many LGBT people out there. It's like, you have to ask. <laughs> and a few hands would go up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when I say a few, I'm talking about maybe 10%, mm-hmm. you know. And I would say, listen, you got to understand, it's okay to be a homos- uh, to be a heterosexual, <laughs> mm-hmm. you don't have to be ashamed of being a heterosexual. But there, the narrative is so strong; it's almost like if you're not, you also want to be LGBTQ because those are the superior people. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be a Christian; you want to be a non-Christian. That's the superior people, mm-hmm. and you you want to hate America. That's the superior people. You you know you, males, you know, males are the bad people just because of the group you're in. You're toxic. It's the females. They're never toxic. <laughs> you know, and so this cultural Marxism in the last couple of years has has really taken root. At least what we're seeing is yeah. the people we're talking to on campus. Yeah, I think it's I think there was a radical shift. I you know, I heard someone refer to it as the Great Awakening with the death of George Floyd. And I think it's like an appropriate an appropriate like nomenclature for it because it uh yeah it was like a, a shift in religion and you and i may have been talking about this but i contacted the pastor in omaha nebraska because i felt like it was almost demonic satanic it's not just like oh you got you know you, you got someone who lies and you're like that's a satanic lie you know what i mean so and just seeing because of the all the self-righteousness and i realized satan parades as an angel of light and so oftentimes it's cloaked in so much moral self-righteousness even when satan's like are you really going to die there's just just that underlying self-righteousness that satan brings along and i felt like the whole movement was that and it was like the shift in righteousness from faith in christ to our identity in these areas and this makes us righteous we're now the righteous ones and it is a it is a radical shift that i've seen in trying to interact with kids or students uh, post covid um, I think I have seen more demonic activity. I've also just seen that almost like a fog that overtakes their their minds, and it's almost it's almost like they can't think clearly even about basic categories anymore. It's all kind of been collapsed. Yeah. I know there are people who are woke who still say they love Jesus, and I don't doubt them. But I'll say this: I've seen a lot of people reject the faith when they become woke, reject the church. Or they might say, well, I, yeah, I personally love Jesus because he was woke too. <laughs> I don't want to be part of any church. And this is really something churches are struggling with because some churches are trying to say, they're trying to accommodate this. And I think it's a, um, I think it's a Trojan horse. I think mm-hmm. they're, they're allowing in what really is a false religion. It is a cultural Marxism that is based, Marxism is based on an atheism. It's got a different different worldview it has a different what is the problem in our world is different what is the solution in our world is different mm-hmm. what man is is different like yeah what does it mean to be a man what does it mean to be a woman like like yeah we're not socially constructed beings we're images of god that's the beginning point and now obviously we have to interact with our culture but even like that sort of thing like it's a different view of what it means to be a human but everything and, and there and there is not a god in, in this marxism mm-hmm. and when and if to try and bring that into our church and into our christian faith listen we're against racism we're against oppression and so on but not the not this wokeism of the cultural Marxism, and to allow that in, 
it's going to be the destruction of many church, mm-hmm. destruction of their theology, their understanding. And, and you know, I, I know of churches that have lost like that entire, their entire college group over the wokeism hmm. because they wouldn't go protest over George Floyd and lost the whole, the whole college group. 40, 50 students, they all left a church. And uh, I've heard of more than one where they've had real problems like this. So this is something we, it, it, is, a, it is a very subtle attack. You're right, an angel of light. It's like, like the other day at Bowling Green. Certainly you're against racism. Certainly you think black lives matter. <laughs> yeah, I do. Oh, good, then you're a Marxist too. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no yeah. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they don't want any sort of nuance. To, you know, in one sense, always, oh, it's complicated, it's nuanced. They'll, they can say that on any issue they want. But the minute you want to say that, then clearly it's it's such a clear cut. And usually when they ask you the loaded yes or no, it's a, it's usually just a, a way to pigeonhole it. Yes or no. And, uh, yes or no. Yes or no. Yes. Ca- kind of tied in the other day. It was the first time I think I've heard this on campus. I don't remember uh, which campus it was when someone said Jesus was a bisexual. Have you ever, have you ever gotten that before on a campus? Uh, don't know that I no, I don't know that I have. That was at Bowling Green. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I, I was like, I never heard that. And I don't remember what your answer was, but I remember just thinking like, that's the first I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard he's been married before and all that sort of stuff. Like, so you kind of have an apologetic for that. But like, but even like, and I, I think fortunately you're smarter than I was because I would have asked him, where do you get that idea? And I would have had a stupid conversation. I think you just ignored him. If I, I don't really remember exactly what you said, but some, some things aren't worth it. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think you told the cult, but ah, you're just trying to get under my skin. And yeah, you do. I, th- I think you do a better job. Realize, okay, here's here's pearls, here's swine. I'm not, I'm not going it. And I'm like, that swine can get me a crowd. So, <laughs> so, so I think you're a little. I think you handle it better than uh, than I do. So, um, so that that's accelerated everything. So the seed bed was basically there, and it's almost like a bunch of fertilizer was dumped on, and all the weeds began to uh, spring to life. Like, and where, where would you kind of? place that pivot uh in your time preaching but did you did you see it in the late 70s early 80s or was it kind of the 90s with the millennials or something like that well the pivot we we're just discussing yeah like you said it was accelerated but yeah i think the the covet and the george floyd they happened just a couple months apart from yeah mid-march you know all the lockdowns and and, and churches were people weren't meeting in churches you just stop and think of that, that so many churches stopped meeting or they just met online. And and to me, that was a eye-opening. What happened then just a couple months later with the George Floyd? It was eye-opening, the, the destruction, the outrage, that really the demonic explosion in our cities happened at a time when churches and cities were not meeting. And they'd not been meeting for a couple months. And to me, it just says that there's what we do when we come together and we worship God together and we learn from God together. We're having a bigger effect in mm-hmm. being salt and light in our community than we realize. Yeah, absolutely. They might not even be watching. They might see those cars in the parking lot. But there's something going on in the community. And when that was removed, it's like explosion. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've recovered from it. I think that what that that. That period of time, there was an uprising. There was a rebellion went on that has still affected. I mean, we see it on the news. It's affecting crime and so on, but it's affecting who wants to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. 
who, who, who it, the, it, the cultural Marxism took root at a level I don't think it ever had before. Yeah. As a result of that. And and yeah, you're absolutely right because now you know if you're a Christian, you're I mean you're the embodiment, especially us being white. I hear every day you're a bleeping white male, and uh, and from there you throw the Christian on top of it. So we embody um, just the absolute. Tyranny of Western culture and the subtle irony of like you look at the rest of the world. It's not like anybody's fleeing to other parts of the world because like oh man, what the Hindus have built, what the communists have built, what the Shintos have built, whatever it is. It's not like people want to go to those parts of the world, and yet here we are as the oppressor. And yeah, we can acknowledge sin, obviously, in any culture in Western culture. Um, but but there is. Uh, yeah, have you come across Tom Holland's book Dominion? Have you heard of that? Uh, um, I'm not. Somewhat familiar, but I'm not right. Okay, but he even if you just listen to some interviews from him, because he was an atheist guy who was uh, maybe wrote a critique of Islam, if I understand him properly. And the Muslim was like, "Well, where do you get your ideas from?" He's like, "I'm just going to write this atheist book." And he's like, oh, "I got it all from Christianity." You know what I mean all the things we hold dear, even the idea that we'd be on George Ford's side because he's the marginalized man killed by the state. The fact that we're there—that's actually the vestiges of Christianity that even make us sympathetic towards them. And that was kind of like the demonic nature of the whole thing for me. It was like it's so—it it sounds so close in in so many ways. You know what I mean? A man suffers, dies, and you want righteousness, you want justice, and all this sort of stuff, um, and yet we can't get there. And, and yeah, that sort of stuff, just realizing what, what the gospel has given Western culture, not what white people have given Western culture in of itself, but what the gospel coming through Europe has done for us, and not only for us, but literally for the rest of the world, be it the abolition of slavery. We always want to be yoked with slavery, but we brought the abolition of slavery because the gospel came and have uh, set us free. And so it is it is one of those frustrating things for me uh, being on campus where you just kind of see this haze over people and and even just all the rhetoric. I remember preach up in Vermont a couple years ago and a young black woman there said she was a Christian and you know now she's woke and all that sort of stuff. And she realized that I colonized the Bible. You know, and like so even like that sort of thing. And, and, and there's never any evidence to believe it. It's just a presupposition she made. So I asked her, well, what particularly have we colonized? What what text, what what verse, how are we where where was the change made? And then from there, can you correct me? And how do I know you're just not recolonizing it? And she was like, oh, you don't get it. Well, no, I don't. You know what I mean? I don't. Explain it to me. Help me, help me understand. If 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 I've genuinely done that, show me where it is. You know what I mean? But it's just this a priori commitment to the idea that, like, yeah, the the oppressed, whoever that is, whoever we want it to be, we're just going to assume they're right. Jesus is on the side of the marginalized, is what the assumption, and then we'll just kind of tease out the implications from there. So, and that the marginalized, because they're marginalized, that makes them morally superior. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what how they've lived, and and if you if you're winning, if you're like in the power in the culture, that means you're morally inferior. You know, one thing I do uh, in the '90s, I I became. Um, very involved and in believing that we need to teach what, what I just called, and I don't know if others do or not, cultural apologetics. And that is the effect that the Christian faith has had upon our world. I read a book by D. James Kennedy called What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And, and, and uh, it was very profound for me because he talked there about, uh, by the way, a lot of things that nobody's getting in their education unless you're homeschooled or Christian school. <laughs> and even then you might not be. But uh, certainly not in the public schools, and I'd been raised in the public school. And we'd all educated our children, so I, w- I knew a lot lot of the good things Christians had done. But in this book by, by James Kennedy, uh, he, he just assembled it all together and said it in a way, what if Jesus had never been born? It was a takeoff on the movie It's a Wonderful Life, where what if George Bailey had never been uh, born, okay. how bad the world would have been, and <laughs> his life was more significantly thought. And he's talking about the significance of Jesus' life in, in education and freedom, government, 
uh, again, abolition of slavery, how women are treated, how children are treated, just about 17 areas he went through. Keith, it was really interesting because I was reading that book uh, as a Purdue University preaching campus. That night I went out, I was by myself, I went out to, uh, uh, you know, one of these all-unique buffet-type places and sat there and just read the book and ate for <laughs> And that night, as I, the restaurant was closing and I stood out of the parking lot and I just prayed to the Lord and I said, Lord, I've always been grateful to Jesus, but I've never been so proud of him. That was a feeling I'd never been. I, I was proud of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I thought, Jesus, you have done so much good in our world. And you and your followers, I'm proud of you. And, and I'm proud of your people. In a world where it wants to tell us to be ashamed of our heritage, mm-hmm. ashamed of our Christian heritage, ashamed of our country, ashamed of our family, ashamed of everything, and to see what good Jesus had done. And I began to preach on that quite a bit. The, the the cultural effect Christians have had because as you said they all know that that Christians own slaves mm-hmm. they don't know that Christians were the ones who abolished the slavery mm-hmm. they all know the negative and and in our schools today you can criticize Christianity but if you say anything positive about Christians a Christian people the church uh, that you're not separating the church and state you yeah can do that mm-hmm. and so they're just getting one side and it's and it's filled with this negativity. And missing what has happened. We stand really on the shoulders of giants, servants, but giants who have their love for Jesus, they're preaching the gospel, they're teaching the word, and they're living it has has changed our world so dramatically. Yeah, and it's interesting, even when you uh, first started uh, discussing kind of some of the aspects of history, I was thinking, I was like, without going too far afield in the concept of Christian nationalism or anything like that, but there is that element where, like, even just the idea, like, you know, you throw out a term like Christian nationalism is supposed to be like a dirty word right off the bat and stuff like that, but even part of that, I, th- I do think, is in part trying to strip Christians, like, there's, there's a full frontal attack on anything in Western culture has to be wholly negative, and even many Christians at times want to retreat, and if we just repent enough, maybe they will, maybe if we just grovel at their feet, maybe they'll accept it, um, but I, I, yeah, I do think about those things, and I, you know, I'm, no, I'm not steeped enough in American history, but, like, you start to read American history, history documents, you're kind of like, they are Christians. Uh, okay, or, or it is complicated. Okay, he is kind of deistic-y, and he is this. But the, the, the air they breathe is Christianity. And so even if you're uh, Thomas Jefferson, you still have to do something with the New Testament. You mean, you might mutilate it, but you still are sitting there going, okay, we at least need the morality of the New Testament. And and so even, yeah, just, just the permeation of Christ in Western culture in so many ways that we don't realize, and even a young man at Bowling Green acknowledge it, like, oh yeah, I totally believe in women, dignity, rights, all that sort of stuff because of uh, Christianity. Now get off our campus, homophobe. You know what I mean? <laughs> As, uh, so I was like, whoa, right? Like, wait, that, that, so so it, it's like in one breath he'd acknowledge it, the next breath he, he takes it all back because like it, they think now that we've gotten here, we can we can jettison the things that got us here, but I, I don't think they're uh, consciously aware of the destruction that's in their wake. And and even, I guess maybe even celebrating the idea of mutilating themselves now. I always think of like just, just the rise of the trans to me I don't know what the right word is. Like it's, it's almost dumbfounded because like I would think of cutters in high school and you're like, Oh no, they're a cutter. You know what I mean? But, but if you're 13 years old and you want to cut off your penis, people are like, Oh, well that's pretty progressive. You know what I mean? Like you cut, you, you, you put a little slice in your uh, arm forearm to feel alive. You know, that's bad. But if you cut off the whole thing and you start taking hormones, well, boy, oh boy, that's progressive. You know? And you're just like the, the fact that we can uh, kind of entrench such insanity into our culture and Romans one, I think you preach on it maybe at, NC State, your culture's under judgment, and uh, they were handed over the degrading passion uh, that their bodies might be dishonored amongst them. And and the hard part is, and the frustrating part is, 
going all the way through to Romans 3, where he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And, and, and the amount of blasphemy I feel like I hear on campus this time, uh, post-COVID, is amazing to me. And how much, no matter what the issue is, is brought, well, God created us. God created us. It's his fault. It's his fault. It's his fault. And like every day on campus, there's that person who rages against God saying it's his fault, his fault, his fault. And if he really loved, he would do something about it. But then you realize when he does, does something about it, you'll hate that too. You know what I mean? So so when he does something about it, you're, you're on your way to hell and you're going to hate that too. So careful what you hope for. But uh, yeah, that radical shift, and I do think some aspect of uh, discipling Christians and appreciating, like you were saying, proud of Christian. Look, look at what Je- Jesus rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father, and here's what it looks like as he puts down his enemies under his feet through Europe, and is going to go to Africa. It is going to go to China, and you know, it might not be in the time frame we want, but the Lord's going to do those things. Amen. You know, can I, I will add another thing about, and that is uh, the area of self-righteousness. People, you know, I was I was taught years ago that you know Jesus was very hard on religious people and very gentle with the sinners, and I don't think that's what I see in the New Testament. I see Jesus was very hard on the self righteous, and in his day, the self righteous were the religious people, mm-hmm. and he was very gentle on the humble on the humble broken people who were aware of their need, and and were were were, were in need, and they were aware of it. In our day. The most self-righteous people on the campus are the LGBT people. Mm-hmm. They're marching around uh, being proud. What better way? <laughs> uh-huh. right. uh-huh. And we're proud of who we are. And God made me this way. And I hear it all the time. God made me gay. God made me this. God made me that. And and the self-righteousness far exceeds anything the Pharisees had in Jesus' mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And lots of times, the humble people of our day are the people who believe in God. They're the ones, I'm a sinner, I'm... (laughs) They're quick to admit their faults, Mm -hmm. often, not always, but often. And so, sometimes when we think as campus preachers, how do we address people? How do we, you know, Jesus was, he had some hard words for the Pharisees, not because they were religious, because they were self-righteous. He had some gentle word for the prostitutes and tax collectors, not because they were prostitutes and tax collectors, but because they had they they knew they were sinners and they and he saw within them a brokenness and a willingness to need to need his salvation. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think it's and even yeah, uh, James it says uh, he opposed the proud, he gives grace to the humble, and and that is and like even when you're out there when you you know kind of in simple terms you know they they have the in the critical you have the oppressor impressed, but it's either the proud or the humble, you know, or you have the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. So and even that's kind of a cop you know the cultural Marxist copycat Christianity because like you need that seed of the serpent, seed of the woman battle. We all have to have you know Marx begins with the you know history of the world's class struggle. No, it's the history between the serpent and the woman and whose seed is right. Jesus is the righteous one. He now rules and reigns and and. Teasing out, I kind of lost my train of thought, but teasing out the implication of that we're on campus. But oh, it is the proud versus the humble on campus. And I try to tell the students all day long, I was like, if you're humble, I have nothing but grace to preach to you. You know what I mean? The, God's mercy, his kindness, his love. And um, But if you're proud, and even uh, Bowling Green, man, they're, they're, one of my five favorite days of the semester because like so many kids at the end of the day like you left a little bit before me I had like maybe 15 10 kids whatever it was and they're like most of them were so humble and uh and there's this girl Anna and another girl Brooke who uh I think Anna even had like a communist uh sticker on her backpack and uh, but she was so amazingly humble and then and even before I left she's like well so where do I begin like where do I like and and it was like just go home and read the bible the same disposition you ask me these questions and God will show himself to you cuz you're humble 
Well, and by the way, just for those who are listening in here, let me describe that kind of <laughs> a bit. Uh, we had quite a rowdy crowd early in the day. Uh, quite a number of people who were uh, sure we were wrong. Yeah, and, and Tom did get his first cup of coffee thrown at him, and he blames me. He's blaming. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never had that happen before. And then there was with Keith that some girl uh, uh, drenched me in a cup of cappuccino. <laughs> She's willing to spend five bucks on you, so yeah, is that least right? <laughs> but uh, but they were they were quite rowdy and quite aggressive. But by the end of the day, those same people. The many of the same people who before had been so argumentative and so loud were standing around Keith, 50, at least 15 of them, I thought, quiet as could be, Keith had them eating. <laughs> they were just all ears, just listening. And if any of them had a question, they raised their hand and asked for an opportunity to, to say their question. No shouting, no interrupting, no accusing. And I just thought, this is what happens when, when often in a day, they start rowdy. They, the word of God, there's this rebellion, there's this overflow. But as the day goes on, they see our sincerity. They see our love. They see we mean it. We're not just going to, they're going to insult us. We don't insult them back. We give a blessing. We, we're, we're straightforward and firm and clear, but we're not going to be mean-spirited and hateful. And, and as the day goes on, some of the most rowdy people and most rebellious people, they quiet down, they listen. And I left, it was after 6 o'clock. It yeah. started earlier, you know, noonish. It was after 6 o'clock. People have been there for hours, and now all ears just listening. And that's the power of, of campus preaching that focuses on the Word of God and is determined to stand firm, strong, but in uh, speaking the truth of God. Yeah, and I think we, we just need to be persuaded of that. If, if we could persuade pastors, preachers, teachers that, like, a- actually it's kind of black coffee that people, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it is a black coffee that people are looking for. Like, and we think if we just water it down, if we just get enough sugar in there, sweeten it up. But, like, and yeah, because we're being clear as all day, but hopefully gracious, long suffering, patient. And thinking of just, uh, as, as you kind of mentioned that, like, um, what are some of your favorite, if you think of just a, a few stories over your career? Let me have one other thing. Okay. Okay. Because, like, you know, sometimes people say, is this doing any good? And uh, why don't you just invite them to church? Those people listening to you at the end of the day who have been so rebellious earlier and, and sitting there eating out of your hands, listening <laughs> and drinking, never come into our church. And, uh, and that's, that's what I always tell people. I was like, why do I do it? Because, because everyone will come out and get the racist, sexist, homophobe in the middle of campus, but they're not going to necessarily go to a crusade meeting or church. You know what I mean? And next thing you know, after several hours of listening to them, they're like, oh, they're not this. You know what I mean? They're not at all what I thought they were going to be. And next thing you know, like, yeah, they're having conversations and, you know, who knows what will happen to Ann and Brooke. Maybe they'll go back and read their Bibles. And next thing you know, uh, three years from now, a year from now, I might get a message for them and saying, I'll tell you one other thing. Probably, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw out half those kids were raised in a Christian home. Mm-hmm. And they've got a praying parent, and they're, they're not going to go to Bible study. They're not going to go to a church, but they got a praying parent at home, and, and, and they see us on campus, and they stand out there, and they start to rage against us. And any anger they had in their upbringing or anger they had at their church or their parents or whatever, they're taking it out on us. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, uh-huh. It comes in hot and heavy, but we continue. We just love them, and we're gracious and kind, and as the day goes on, they 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 get tamed. Mm-hmm. They and I just think 
What parents' prayers are being answered right now? Yeah, and I think that's a key point because even real or perceived, a lot of the kids. Even yesterday, I was amazed. I think how many I asked how many Christians are here. I think three hands. You being one of them. So two two hands. I'm like got to play to the home crowd. I'm like, all right, Tom, get your get your hand up. So I'm not over. And I think it was only because he was trying to distance himself from me. I think it's the only reason he's like, I'm not with this guy. And uh, and so when the three hands got up, I was like, well, how many here were raised in a Christian home? Like 25 hands. Yeah. And so so the 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 growth between being raised. In, who are Christians who are raised in a Christian home? I mean, the, the apostasy rate of our children is just kind of off the charts. And so, and, and they don't just walk away from the faith. Many of them become very antagonistic to the faith. Mm-hmm. They are they, they are some of our chief hecklers. Those who are raised in a good Christian home, maybe went to a Christian school, and and uh, I don't know what you know. Satan's got a target. They got a target on their back. Mm-hmm. Satan's after him. He's after our children. He hates our children. And, and we are losing a lot of them. We're losing way too many. And sometimes we're out there. I always love it when um, some guy's heckling me, and I ask him his name, and he says, Noah. <laughs> Caleb. Uh, Caleb. Uh, 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 oh, you, you, you've got Christian. You brought home school. <laughs> and uh, more often than not, yes. Mm-hmm. And so I say, okay, I know I've got some air support. <laughs> Someone's praying for him. That's right. When you think of over you know, 42 years of preaching, if you don't mind sharing a couple of your favorite just kind of evan- days, evangelism stories, and go ahead. And- well, okay, so if you ask that, and I've got so many stories, and you ask that broadly, I can't think of anything. So, uh, so in, in a few years ago, I wrote a book called Taking It to Their Turf, which are about 70 of my favorite stories on campus. Now, some of them are great wins. Some of them are losses. Some of them will make you laugh. Some will make you cry. Some are um, uh, the whole story. I had someone, I talked to a man yesterday who read my book, and he said one thing he liked about it, I didn't just tell the victories. Mm -hmm. I also told the days that were really hard, and I failed. And so, uh, but you can find this taken to the turf at my website, tomthepreacher.com. And you can probably find it on Amazon, but don't go there because they'll just send you over to my website. (laughs) So tomthepreacher.com. TomThePreacher.com. And um, maybe what I'll do is just randomly flip it yeah. and see if I fly. Yeah. When you're in desperate need, like, dear Lord, you just showed me something. <laughs> okay, that one's called Shellfish, Mixed Fabrics, and Killing <laughs> Um So I'll tell this story because we often get asked, hey, Tom, Keith, do you eat shellfish? Uh-oh. Tom, Keith, you're wearing clothing and mixed fabric. Take it off. And, um, you know, because they don't understand the Old Testament law, they think that, that uh, you know, be, that we just pick and choose what we want. We like crabs, so we say mm-hmm. crab. We don't like homosexuals, so we say that you, that part of the law you obey. So we have to instruct them on how to understand the law. But how about killing homosexuals? I remember the first time this question ever came up to me, and I hope I answered the way you <laughs> There's a guy at the University of Maryland, early 80s, and he, he would come out there often. I believe he was very active in the LT uh, in, at the time, just the L. Just a G. Just a G. Just, G. just the gays. <laughs> and uh, he was pretty articulate and he was likable, but he was, he, was, he was always very antagonistic against me. And one day he said, Tom, the Bible says we should kill homosexuals. Do you think I should be stoned? And uh, I didn't really know how to answer. I'd never been asked this question before. And I've, and uh, so I said to him, uh, I don't want to kill you. I want to convert you. 
you know, I want to see you saved, you know. And he said, and the crowd kind of laughed and agreed with me for a little bit. But he just kept looking at me and said, that's not good enough. Suppose I don't convert. Suppose I don't convert. The Bible says to kill me, to stone me. Do you advocate that I should be stoned right here today? Should I be stoned because I'm a homosexual? And, of course, it's a trick question. If I say yes, really? You <laughs> kill all the homosexuals? You know, if I say yes, if I agree with the Bible, that if I say no, oh, see, you don't believe the Bible. So it's like it's like when they ask Jesus a question, should we pay taxes? And mm-hmm. it's not. They didn't want to know if they should pay taxes. They're trying to trap him. And we get asked a lot of questions designed to trap us. People aren't interested in answer. They just want to trap us. Well, I kept trying to, you know, kind of get my way out of it. Because I'd never been asked this question. I didn't know how to answer it. And um, finally, I said, um, well, I'm not saying we should kill homosexuals. But if we decide to, maybe we should begin with whoever seduced you into this. And you would think, I just thrown a cup of cold water. <laughs> you know, I, he just stood there and stared at me. For what seemed like a long time. It was probably only a few seconds. But afterwards, it was real quiet. People wanted to hear his answer. And finally he said, maybe you're right. That was pretty stunning. I kind of took a risk by thinking, kill whoever seduced you into it. Mm-hmm. They always have no seduced me. I was born this way. Mm-hmm. But when I said, we need to kill somebody, maybe we should start with the person who seduced you into this. And his answer, maybe you're right. You know, the guy died of AIDS within a year. Oh, wow. And, uh, early on, he was one of the early casualties in AIDS. It was first being diagnosed, and they didn't even really know, did we get it from sex or mosquitoes? We weren't sure at mm-hmm. the time. And... Um, there was a fundraiser on campus. I never saw him dead, but I saw a year later there was these fundraisers uh, in his memory to raise money for AIDS research. So uh, that's one story. Mm-hmm. That's great. I'll tell another one yeah. that comes from my book called The, the Most Dramatic Conversion I've Ever Seen. And uh, it's by a guy, his name was David. And uh, he was, uh, this is down at the University of North Florida in, in uh, Jacksonville. And I was just started preaching, and David was, he's probably in his late 40s, and he came by, and he was filled with the most blasphemous, most blasphemous, it's like coming out of his mouth and, 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 and uh, you know, mocking me. And I reproved him pretty strongly, uh, you know, and uh, he, you know, he's pretty aggressive, and I responded pretty aggressively, and then he left, and he, and he was gone. He came back about three or four hours later and asked if he could talk to me privately. Well, I was with another person, preached for a while, and we went off and we talked privately. He asked, um, he said, I owe you an apology. He said, I was really out of line. I'm really sorry for it. I, that was really, really, I was pretty bad what I said there. Uh, I owe you an apology, and I accept his apology. And he said, now I've got a question for you, though. I said, uh, what's that? He said, can God love me? And I was assuming it was in light of the blasphemy that he just said. And I said, well, you know, God God loves us all, and God can forget. He said, no, 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 you can't answer that question until you know who I am. I said, what do you mean? Tell me, who are you? He told a story about how, uh, as a uh, uh, young man in, in uh, Kentucky, he had been converted, pretty radical, dramatic conversion experience he'd had. He would share his testimony in churches around. He, he, people wanted to hear his testimony and speak in churches. And then he got drafted and he went to Vietnam. And he said, Tom, when I was in Vietnam, I really did some horrible, horrible things. I, and, and he, you know, basically some war crimes he, he was telling me he'd done. And he said he came back 
and he went to Bible school, and he graduated Bible school. He became a pastor in a church, but he never, ever, he was haunted by things he'd done in war, and obviously PTSD-type stuff. Um, he said one day he stood in front of his church, and he told the church, he said, I don't believe this anymore. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I encourage you not to believe in him either. And he said he walked down the aisle, walked out the door. He said, I've not been back in a church since. That was years ago. I forget, 15 years. I don't know how many years. I forget. So many years ago. And so I now ask you, sitting here today, can God love me? And you know what we talked about? I, I thought of his namesake, King David. And I shared how David had sinned with Bathsheba and, and, and the death of Uriah. And I said, uh, let's turn and read Psalm 51. As we read Psalm 51, King David, his repentance, uh, right out there on the campus, David, David just started weeping, weeping and wailing. I mean, it was, it wasn't mm-hmm. a little sob. I mean, he just, it's like 20 years of guilt, just, you know, going back into the Vietnam and, and going back into the, walking out of this church and all the guilt and shame he'd felt. It's just like it came out of him and it was just wailing. And, um, and, and I believe he had a fresh repentance at that day. Mm-hmm. He was back on campus. He was a school teacher, and he's having to take a continuing ed few hours of that. But that was a pretty dramatic conversion. I don't know all what happened. This gets into all kinds of theology. Mm-hmm. The first place, uh, yeah. You know, all kinds of stuff like that. But I'll tell you, he had a turning, to, turning back to the Lord that day. Mm-hmm. That guy would never go to church. Mm-hmm. But he hears this on campus. The last thing he said to me, again, he wanted to apologize again for how uh, – the things he had said, but he said, Tom, my grandma used to tell me that if you throw a stone into a pack of dogs, the one who yelped. <laughs> and he said, I want to tell you the reason I yelped at you so loudly is <laughs> your preaching. It hit me. Mm. And, and I, and I responded the way I did and I reacted and I cursed at you and I said all this blasphemous stuff. And I went in the, my classroom. And as I sat there, I realized this is God reaching out to me. And this is my time. So many times I prayed, God, if you're there, you got to show me. And he said, I sat in my class. I realized that God had answered that prayer. I needed to come back and talk to you. And so, you know, when we're out there on the campus, sometimes sometimes we're throwing out the word of God, and sometimes it hits, and sometimes they yell. <laughs> yell the loudest were the ones mm-hmm. that touched the deepest. Yeah, that's great. That's a great story. Um, let people know how they can find you on whatever social media and all that sort of jazz. So I go by Tom, the preacher. That's my website, Tom, com, And again, you can find information there, but I also have a daily YouTube video at eight 30 live, eight 30 Eastern time live, or you can listen to the podcast or you can watch the YouTube anytime. I don't take them down. And again, YouTube does, but, but again, search for Tom, the preacher. And uh, and also I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, TikTok. the TikTok. TikTok. And again, <laughs> just search Tom the Preacher. I got videos. The shorter ones are on Instagram, TikTok, and so on. And about a 15 minute daily teaching and prayer time on YouTube. Great, good stuff. Well, I'm glad we've been able to spend a couple of days together preaching because it's been a minute. And uh, yeah, so that's Tom Short, a little bit of a mentor of mine of sorts. And so reach out to him, find out what he's doing more, and we will talk to you in a week on the Campus Preacher Podcast. Thanks. Bye bye.